This is an ABC podcast. What do the Me Too movement, political secularism and widespread sympathy for Black Lives Matter protests have in common? According to historian Tom Holland, they all point to the residual, if paradoxical, influence of Christianity on the West. As Western economic power retreats, so also does its cultural power. And people in the West are having to wake up to the fact that lots of things that they had just assumed were natural are in fact very culturally contingent. And things that are culturally contingent in the West, as I've been saying, by and large, derive from Christianity. Hello and welcome to Soul Search, podcast and broadcast with ABC RN, the show that digs into the lived experience of religion and spirituality. What do we believe? How do we think about that? And how does it matter in our lives and communities? I'm Meredith Lake, and it's great to be with you today as we seek a bigger picture of the world we live in. In fact, today's show is the first instalment of a four-part series as Soul Search pans out for a new view of our inner and outer worlds. It's called The Bigger Picture, and whether or not you're the kind of person who sometimes gets lost in the detail, we've got some great guests with some big ideas coming your way over the next few weeks. First up today, a best-selling historian of classical antiquity, whose study of the ancient world gave him a fresh and controversial perspective on our own day. Tom Holland, welcome to Soul Search. It's uh, really, really wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks ever so much for asking me. This book is hugely ambitious. It's panoramic. It spans the time from Caesar Augustus right through to now, to the Me Too movement. And it's about the making of the Western mind. And it's called Dominion. Why that title? Well, the making of the Western mind is a subtitle that was really forced on me by my British editor who didn't want to alert or frighten the readers with the implication that the book is actually a history about uh, what has been influential on the West about Christianity. And the core argument of the book is really that everything that makes the West distinctively Western derives essentially from Christian history and Christian theology. And the dominion alluded to in the book is really the dominion of Christianity that has become this kind of vast global faith. And it hints at the paradox that Christianity has as its central symbol a man suffering the death of a slave on an instrument of torture. And it kind of valorizes weakness, those who are oppressed by the forces of empire. And yet Christianity itself has become in a way the most powerful, the most influential way of explaining what humanity are on this planet for that has ever existed. And the book is all about the paradoxes that, that Christianity generates. And I suppose, in a sense, that is the key paradox, that this faith, which is founded on the idea of the power of weakness, has emerged, become so incredibly strong. It's interesting you say that your editor suspected some people might be scared off by this very audacious argument. Is that something that made sense to you? What do you think the reticence is around 
discussing the influence of Christianity in the terms you're describing? I don't think it was so much the the argument itself. I think it was just that he worried that having crosses or images of Jesus or anything that, that appeared overtly Christian on the cover would mark it out as being a book written overtly for a Christian audience. And I think that that, in in a sense, derive, reflects the way that things are, certainly in, in Britain, certainly in Europe generally, a sense among those perhaps who buy uh, popular history books that they've emancipated themselves from Christianity. I think that that's certainly the kind of the gatekeepers of culture uh, in the media, in politics, in academia, in publishing, it's become rather infradig to identify yourself as Christian. And that intrigues me because ultimately the book is about this is this is a delusion. People in the West have not emancipated themselves from Christianity. So in a sense, the whole marketing around this book, it's making play with the fact that the difficulty that people in the West seem to have with this incredible cultural legacy that I think continues to shape them. And yet and yet, so many people think that it has no influence on them at all. And really, the book is about why I think that that influence still operates, but also why in the modern West, people have come to feel kind of awkward or anxious or reluctant to, to admit to that. Just to scratch that itch a little bit, let's run through a couple of examples of where you see, I guess, a surprising, even maybe subterranean now, Christian influence on things that at least on the surface, don't look at all Christian. One of your examples is sexual ethics in the Me Too era. I mean, the usual argument here is that the so-called Christian values are precisely the things that should be or are being thrown off. But you say that the Me Too movement is evidence of or even expressive of Christian influences. How does that work? Well, I came to this question perhaps from an unusual position, which is that I've spent decades immersed in the study of Roman culture and society. And one of the things that prompted me to write Dominion was this kind of unsettling sense that the Roman understanding about sex and about how the human body is to be understood was kind of radically, and from my perspective, disconcertingly alien to ours. For the Romans, Roman sexuality revolved around the idea that there was the powerful male, the free citizen, and then there was everyone else. And those who were subordinate to the free male citizen were essentially fair game. They could be used in any way that the male citizen wanted, which essentially, from our perspective, is a license to rape. And the understanding that every human being has a dignity and that every body has a kind of sacral quality. So by implication, every every woman has a right to say to a predatory man, back off, my body is my own. This is ultimately derived from Pauline teaching. It's imposed by the church as it evolves its sexual ethics in the, the early centuries of its existence. And over the course of the centuries that follow its triumph in in the Roman world, it essentially completely reconfigures the way that the Romans had understood what sexuality should be about. And over the course of Christian history, again and again, 
the church and the people who see themselves as the guardians of public morality have repeatedly imposed this understanding of sexuality upon both men and women. When I came to write the book, I I began it before the Me Too movement began. And it did seem to me that this was an understanding of sexuality that that had begun to fade. I was kind of very much aware of the sexual revolution of the 60s. And so I was thinking, well, perhaps I've got to fess up and say that this is one area of Christian influence that is indeed kind of fading away. Then the Me Too movement happened. And I sort of went... It seems, after all, that this Christian understanding of the sacral quality of of each individual body hasn't actually changed so much. Because what was striking about the Me Too movement wasn't just that that women were getting behind it, but that its assumptions were so universally accepted by men as well. When you put the Me Too movement in the context of 2,000 years of history and of the evolution of sexual morality in, in the West... The question to ask is, well, what problem would a Roman in the age of Augustus have had with the behavior of Harvey Weinstein? And the answer is he would have had no problem with it at all. And it's important to emphasize that, you know, the Romans were not an immoral people. Every civilization, every culture has had its morality. It's just that their morality was very different to ours. And that that was kind of a fascinating question for myself to explore was just how relative are my assumptions, are my principles, are my values, my ethics. Tom, you mentioned that you, well, you made your name as a historian writing about classical antiquity. You've translated the histories of Herodotus for Penguin, no less. What was it that made you turn specifically, though, to look at Christianity and its influence? My fascination with classical antiquity is a childhood one. And it was really a kind of seamless evolution from my fascination with dinosaurs, which like lots of small boys, I was kind of obsessed by them because they were they were fierce and they were glamorous and they inhabited a world that seemed incredibly removed from the, the mundanity of the world that I lived in. And yet it had been real. It had actually existed. Uh, and in a way, the Greeks and perhaps particularly the Romans are, the, you know, the tyrannosaurs of antiquity. They're the kind of the terrifying <laughs> apex predators. And everything that I think is frightening about the Roman world, when you imagine yourself actually existing within it, to my childhood self seemed just compulsively gripping. You know, the, the legions, the standards, the purple, the, the vast buildings. And so there was there's a kind of incredibly seductive power to, to the imagery of Rome and to the glamour and the self-promotion of it. And by comparison, Christianity all seemed to me pretty boring. So if you'd, you know, you'd asked me when I was 10, whose side are you on with yeah. Jesus confronting Pilate? I'd have been totally on the side of Pilate. No, not the because, meek and you know, mild. No, it's kind of boring. Who wants the meek and mild? You want glamour, you want power. So in a sense, when I came to write about uh I, I, the first book I wrote, Rubicon, was about the final years of the Roman Republic. So that's the age of, of Julius Caesar and so on. I'd always kind of you know, thought of Caesar as a hero. But of course, having to sit down and, and, and what I was trying to do was to, to let my readers see the world as the Romans themselves had saw it. So I, in a sense, I had to kind of live in the minds of the, of, of the Romans for two, three years. And I, I found the process pretty unsettling because Caesar, for instance, we're told by Plutarch, who's writing a century later, but he, he presumably wasn't exaggerating too much, that Caesar, when he conquered Gaul, 
killed a million Gauls, enslaved another million. And nobody in Rome had any problem with that at all. And when it's Jesus not the Asterix and Obelix version, is it? No, that's the limit of it. And it's that's confronting it. to realise, actually, that's not entertainment. Yes. But also, as I was then went on to write about Greece as well as Rome, the difficulty of using the most basic words, like, so, so religion would be an obvious one, um, secular, homosexuality, all these words that actually when you use them, they come trailing all kinds of strange significations that to the Romans would have made no sense at all. And more and more, I kind of ask myself, well, what is it that has generated this? What is it, this kind of smokescreen that seems to veil the Roman world from where I'm standing? And I began to realize that essentially it's all rooted in, in Christianity. And the scale of the transformation is so vast that in a sense, we can't see it. We're, we're too close to it. And really, that was that was what I wanted to explore in Dominion, was how it was that that revolution, that transformation had happened and the degree to which we are still kind of, you know, moving in its wash. On RN, this is Soul Search, today in the company of British historian Tom Holland. His most recent book, Dominion, makes a big claim that a lot of what Western societies take as basic or even natural isn't natural at all, but the highly contingent legacy of a particular Christian past. Tom says that whatever a Western person's individual beliefs, religious or otherwise, they're like a goldfish in a bowl of basically Christian water. Not everybody sees it that way, of course. So how did Tom Holland come to that view? Well, for him, it was a matter of getting to grips with the figure of Paul. After Jesus, Paul was the most influential person in early Christianity. His letters make up part of the Christian New Testament. And as a missionary, he helped spread the faith throughout the Roman world. Paul's interpretation of Christianity sparked a revolution of ideas including, says Holland, in relation to law. In Islam, like in in Jewish scripture, the assumption is that God is is an overt legislator. He gives laws. In Islam, the assumption is that Muhammad is the kind of the heir and the successor to Moses. Whereas Paul doesn't feature. Paul is the most significant figure in the Christian Bible not to appear in the Quran. So the distinctiveness of Paul's understanding of the law, his notion that in the new covenant, the law of God is written on the heart and that therefore humans can access it by looking into Paul calls it synodesis, a word he draws from from the Stoics, but the the best translation of that would be conscience. The degree to which the West's assumption that law is something that is of human origin, that it can be determined by conscience rather than by a law that is supposedly derived from a god, directly from a god, that all of these have have had huge influences on the, the kind of societies that have evolved in the West. We, we very much live with the implications of that today, because if the law of God is written on the heart and it's illumined for believers by the spirit, then the assumption has to be that over the course of time, that understanding can become purified, can become uh, improved. And therefore, you have an idea that law can be progressive, that 
as time goes on, so we will arrive at a better understanding of what conscience should properly reveal to us. And I think that's exactly where we in the West are at the moment, that the, the idea that law should be progressive is pretty much hardwired into, I mean, into, yes. into states across the West. The assumption that somehow we would be more advanced um, morally as well as in other ways than, than our forebears is quite, uh, quite the contemporary conceit, perhaps. But listening to you, Tom, you're talking about Stoicism as an influence, obviously Judaism, or at least the Hebrew scriptures as an influence. What did, did early well, Christianity capture, if you like, from the world that it emerged from? Nothing comes from nothing. So Christianity clearly is a melange of different influences. And you said in the introduction that the book begins with, with Augustus. Actually, it actually begins 500 years before Augustus with the Persians who invade Greece in 480 BC. Because although in the West we like to think of ourselves as the heirs of Athens, it seemed to me that actually we're just as much the heirs of Persia because the Persian kings unlike the Greeks, saw the world in moral terms. They saw it as being governed by rival forces of, of good and evil. So that's that's what one aspect of it. Of course, the Greeks, the inheritance of Greek philosophy, the Stoics, I've mentioned their influence, I think, directly on Paul. But that, um, that, that lurking is an interesting in the background... Point that, you, that you relate conscience to the Stoics. I mean, there is that idea in some of the Hebrew prophets of a law written on the heart. It's not exclusively yes, so, so, a Stoic influence, is it? In yes. Paul? Yeah, so you have it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah talks about the law being written on the heart. Uh, and I think that Paul, as a Greek-speaking Jew um, who has studied the Scriptures very closely, in his letter to the Romans, he talks about how the Gentiles have had insights as well. And so he's kind of hinting that there is this law of God which is written on everybody's hearts. And I think that, that the philosophical justification for that is provided by the Stoic idea that the divine is manifest in, every, in everything and therefore in everyone. And that spark of the divine, the Stoics call synodesis. So Paul is very efficiently fusing Greek and Jewish traditions in a way that is absolutely expressive of the world that actually precedes the coming of the Romans. You know, it goes all the way back to, to the empire founded by Alexander the Great, in which Jews and Greeks are rubbing up against each other and occasionally influencing one another. And what you get in the, the way that the Jews understand their God is a kind of tension that is sharpened by this positioning of the Jews in a cosmopolitan world. Because what do you emphasize as a Jew? Do you emphasize the fact that your God is the God of Israel? Or do you emphasize the fact that your God is the God who has created all the cosmos and therefore every human being and culture within the world? And that's a kind of tension that is present within Jewish thought well before the, the lifetime of Jesus. And what happens with the emergence of what today we would call Christianity and rabbinical Judaism, I think, is that that tension becomes so extreme that it generates a split. And essentially, Pauline Christianity becomes the religion of those who emphasize the cosmic character of the God of Israel. And Talmudic uh, rabbinical Judaism becomes the expression of the emphasis is on the God of Israel as the God of the Jews. And then finally, you have the Romans. Jesus is, is crucified by a Roman governor as a criminal, a rebel against Caesar. But the Roman context is kind of crucial because a bit like the modern world today, 
it establishes a vast Petri dish in which all these different influences can meet and mix up even more than they had been before. And one of the things that the Romans do far more brutally than anyone had done before is to enslave entire populations. So Roman rule is like a kind of blades of a great plow going across the Mediterranean, bringing people from different cultures, Persians, Greeks, Jews, whatever, into single melting pots. And I think it's telling that two of the cities that Paul writes uh, letters to, Corinth and Rome, are vastly multicultural. On top of that, you also have the vast infrastructure that Roman power has generated, which enables Paul to get around all these places. So he can take ship and know that hopefully the, the ship isn't going to be ambushed by pirates. He can use the roads that Roman power is kind of laying out in a way very like, you know, like the cables that power the internet today. And I think it's interesting and a kind of intriguing I think not wholly tendentious parallel, the way in which uh, people very opposed to American power have used the internet, a tool that was developed by the CIA. And in a way, Paul, who I think his teachings are radically opposed to the idea of Caesar as a god, he's able to use the apparatus of Roman power to preach and proclaim that message. The paradoxical relationship of that early Christian movement to the Roman world that produced it in many ways is absolutely interesting. And I think you're right, very important. But as you well know, Tom, there is this line of argument that goes something like, well, Christianity is just a variation of all these kinds of ideas that were already floating around, a rehash of existing myths and concepts. Not that remarkable, really, describing Jesus as a son of God or something, not the great breakthrough that it's cracked up to be. Out of this melting pot that you've described, what is the novel thing, the distinctive thing that really marks this new movement out from the Petri dish? Well, as you say, there are other gods which use the phrase son of a god. And the most obvious one is the cult of Augustus, whose literal name, one of his names was Divi Filius, son of a god. And that god was Julius Caesar. Augustus was Julius Caesar's adopted son. And the cult of Augustus in the lifetime of Jesus and Paul was probably the fastest growing cult that the world had ever seen because it was promoted with the full force of, of Roman cultural muscle. The salient factor about Augustus is that he ruled the world. He was the most powerful man that the world had ever seen. And so that was why he deserved to become a god. He had brought peace to the world, a world ravaged by civil war. He was himself the son of a god. At his death, he ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of his divine father. So there were, you know, clear echoes there. But the echoes only make Paul's reformulation of them all the more blasphemous, because Paul is saying it's not you know, the emperor. It's not Caesar, who is the real god, who is the one god. It's this guy who's been tortured to death by a Roman governor in an obscure province. And Paul says that this is going to be a stumbling block to the Jews. It's going to be folly to the Gentiles. And it's folly to the Gentiles because to the Romans, the cross is an emblem of their power to torture anyone who opposes them, not just rebels out in the provinces, but also specifically slaves. So everyone would have seen the Spartacus and the great row of crosses that gets put up along the Appian Way. These are the equivalents of billboards advertising Roman power. 
And crucifixion is seen as uniquely fitted to punish a slave, not just because it's excruciating, not just because it's protracted, but because it's publicly humiliating. And public humiliation is the worst thing that a Roman could, could contemplate having to you. So to say that the cross of all symbols is an emblem of the triumph of the slave over the master, of the weak over the strong, of the colonized over the colonizer. These are incredibly explosively radical ideas. You know, I think see them as the most significant depth charge that human culture has, has ever experienced. And the seismic ripples continue to reverberate out to this very day. There's a reason why this summer the Western world has been roiled by protests that were caused by the death of a man who couldn't breathe. That's how you died on the cross. You asphyxiated. Why should we care that an innocent man couldn't breathe and died at the hands of the state apparatus? Why do we care? We care because for 2,000 years, the spectacle of a man who can't breathe, who's being put to death by the apparatus of a great superpower, has lain at the heart of our understanding of what it is that makes the universe tick. U.S. demonstrators earlier this year protesting the police killing of George Floyd, an injustice that some say resembles the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I'm Meredith Lake with Soul Search here on RN, and historian Tom Holland is tracing the surprising, even paradoxical ways that Christianity still defines Western societies today. He says that the very fact that relatively privileged people care about the oppression of marginalised groups is a sign that Christian ideas and values have taken deep root. Is that really a Christian thing, we might ask, in the secular West today? Holland says yes, and that we can see that by taking a fresh look at the cross. As a symbol, the cross is almost unremarkable now. We see it everywhere from church steeples to charity logos to the necklaces worn by a colleague or a neighbour. But 2,000 years ago, the cross was the ultimate symbol of horror and shame, as Tom Holland grasped for himself when he visited Iraq's Sinjar Plain. Well, my sense of this was very much sharpened by something that I did just after I'd begun writing Dominion, which I, I was commissioned to make a documentary about the fate of the Christians and the Yazidis under the Islamic State occupation in northern Iraq. And we ended up going to a town called Sinjar, which is where Yazidi women had been rounded up um, and either killed or enslaved. Um, the men had been killed and some of them had been crucified. So I was in the ruins of this town that had just been recaptured by the Kurdish militia from ISIS, who were a couple of miles away. I mean, yeah, they were absolutely on the doorstep. And I knew that they had crucified people in exactly the way that the Romans had crucified people, to kind of serve as a warning to people not to resist them. And it opened up this kind of great sense of what it would be like to live in a world where the cross didn't have the kind of resonance that it has for us, that there is a kind of meaning in the suffering of this order of torture and suffering. 
So I came back from Iraq and, and rewrote the introduction to Dominion to focus very much on the cross and to describe what it was actually like to be crucified, to look at the paradox of the fact that the cross to the Romans was simultaneously something that they wanted to draw people's attention to, but that they found so disgusting that they, they very rarely uh, wrote about it. So actually, the only accounts we have of someone being crucified are the four canonical gospels. And that over the course of, of Christian history, Christians themselves seem to have found it embarrassing. I mean, Paul talks about it being embarrassing. Early Christian writers talk about it being embarrassing that, that Jesus suffered this death. And it takes um, a long time, doesn't it, for Christian artists yeah, to depict the cross with yes. any degree of acceptance? Yes, Yes, it does. So the earliest images of Jesus on the cross are done either for necromantic purposes by people who presumably weren't Christian, or, or there's a notorious piece of, of graffiti from Rome which shows somebody being crucified with an ass's head. So it's kind of mockery. And really, the even when you do start to get portrayals of, of uh, Jesus on the cross, so by the end of the fourth century, so that's a century after Constantine's conversion, you get this incredible ivory of Christ on the cross, and he looks—he <laughs> looks like an athlete. He's an athlete who's triumphed in the race against death. He's got a loincloth on. He's incredibly buff. He's incredibly ripped. You know, this is not a man who is suffering excruciating pain, and that's very much something that then feeds into the tradition of, of, of Byzantine art. That the emphasis is on the power of Christ to triumph over death. You don't see Christ's suffering. That's something that is really a theme within uh, Latin Christian art. And even then, it's only around the time of the first millennium that you get images of Christ actually dead on the cross. And then over the course of the, of the Middle Ages, you get a kind of increasing emphasis on the suffering, the agony, the torture that Christ experiences. The long-term effect of that is that people become deadened to what Christ had actually experienced. And yet there have been other people, I guess the other pole in your book to Paul is Nietzsche, the German philosopher of the 19th century, who also saw this sharp contrast of the classical and the Christian and took objection really to this veneration of the suffering Christ. In a sense... Nietzsche is Paul's only rival in drawing out what is scandalous, what is shocking, what is monstrous, what is truly revolutionary about the cross. And of course, Nietzsche does it as someone, unlike Paul, who hates Christianity. And Nietzsche, I think correctly, sees in the cross a repudiation of everything that the Greeks and the Romans had held sacred. Because the image of a slave, broken, ugly, tortured, on a nailed to a, a rough, crude piece of wood, is the opposite of, of all the, the glory and the power and the beauty and the splendor that Greek and Roman culture had tended to associate with the divine and with greatness. And Nietzsche sees this celebration of the weak and the poor and the oppressed as coming at the expense of those who more properly should be allowed to revel in their privilege. And he says that everyone who doesn't accept that essentially is moving to a Christian rhythm. And I think he's, he's right about that, which is why I think that the very idea that privilege might be a problem, which again is something so current at the moment, where does this idea come from? For most periods of history, 
in most places of the world, privilege has been something that is to be valued. Not to be divested of. Yeah. Well, yeah. taking this idea then, how do we or how do you explain the influence or the purchase of such a scandalous idea that even in Paul's words, as you quoted there, is a stumbling block, foolishness to his own society. Why didn't this just fade out as a failed sect? I think there are multiple reasons, but a couple of very obvious ones. The first is that Paul's understanding of what the crucifixion represents, and it's the earliest understanding that we have, you know, that survived. He sees it as an expression of Christ dies for all human beings. He dies for all of humanity. And so that's why he's able to say that in Christ Jesus, there is no Greek or Jew. There is no man or woman. There is no slave or free. This is for everyone. And Christianity is a doctrine that spreads in a world that is very conscious of its universal nature. Rome's claim is that its empire is without limit. Of course, everyone knows that you know, this is an exaggeration. But nevertheless, the idea that Rome's empire is to be equated with the universality of humanity is a very powerful one. And it's one that official Roman propaganda repeatedly makes play with. Now, Christianity, in a sense, piggybacks on that ideology, but expands on it very, very radically. And by saying that it is for you know, illiterate scullery maids, as well as for Greek philosophers, for uh, convicts in mines, as well as for freshly washed senators, saying that it is for barbarians on the outer limits of the world, you know, even Britons. Christianity offers a much more radical and totalizing sense of the universal than anything that official Roman propaganda can. And yet, um, how important in this mix is the adoption of Christianity as an imperial religion? Because it doesn't right. remain on the margins, does it? It, it right. moves right to the centre of imperial power. And you, you mentioned the right. conversion of Constantine, which is <clears throat> blamed or celebrated, depending on your perspective, for all kinds of things in the history of Christianity. Is that the decisive moment? I think it's less decisive than people say, but I think that the second dimension of this, so that the idea that Christianity provides a kind of understanding of the universal that is more potent emotionally, psychologically, spiritually than anything else that's on offer, I think that's one key thing. But I think the other thing is precisely that it is able to offer this to all different classes of Roman society in a way that everyone ends up having a stake in it. So basically what happens in the Roman Empire is that you have a whole collection of different cults, of different ways of understanding the divine that nevertheless are seen by most people as being kind of complementary. The Romans have a specific idea that there is something called a religio, a bond that ties you to the gods, and that if you give them a religio, it could be a priesthood, a sacrifice, a feast day, whatever, then in return, the gods will look after you. So it's a kind of insurance policy. And in the early years of the empire, everyone accepts that different peoples have different religiones. By the beginning of the third century, everyone in Rome, at least every free male, has been given Roman citizenship. So over the course of the third century, there's this nagging anxiety that the whole empire should have a single religio. And by extension, perhaps a single god. And so Constantine auditions a number of different gods for this role. He ends up giving Jesus the, the role, and it turns out to be incredibly successful because it serves the interests of the emperor who can now rule 
as the deputy of a god who's vastly more powerful than Zeus or Serapis or whoever. But at the same time, there is something there for the very weak and the poor as well. And one of the things that also happens in the third century, topically for what we're going through at the moment, is that a, a, a series of terrible pandemics, vastly worse than anything we're experiencing at the moment, sweep through the empire. And, and this is the plague of Cyprian. Yes, and, and the plague of Cyprian, which, which seems to have been so devastating that we have very few accounts of it. But what we do know about it is that Christians stood by those who were sick. You know, they nursed the sick to the degree that they often fell sick themselves and died. And that this was widely noted and widely admired. And the idea that that anyone, no matter how weak you might be, no matter how obscure, no matter how humble, that in the church you might find people who would care for you if you were sick, come visit you if you were in prison, feed you if you were hungry, clothe you if you were lacking clothes, care for you if you were an orphan or a widow or whatever. Obviously, there's something there for the very poor as well. And essentially, even as Christianity is giving to the figure of the emperor a degree of symbolic power that no emperor had previously had, so also is it giving to the vast mass of people in the Roman Empire a dignity, again, that no other value system or cult had ever been able to give the entirety of people. So I think that, that essentially Christianity has something for everyone. You can see how that combination is inherently unstable or unsuited to, you know, the longevity of any particular social arrangement. If yes. you've got these tensions, these ambiguities, yes. these ambivalences built into the idea. And yes. I know we're leaping across centuries here, but Christianity also survives the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And I wonder if you think how crucial that is in, in shaping its subsequent influence. Crucial, because unlike in Byzantium, or indeed in the caliphate as it emerges in the, in the Islamic world, there is no one person who's able to claim a kind of role as a world emperor. People try, Charlemagne does, um, Otto the Great does, but their reach isn't, isn't sufficiently powerful. And so in the course of the 11th century, you see radicals who've, who've seized control of the most significant bishopric in Latin Christendom, that of Rome, push through a really, really radical understanding of how society should be organized. And again, this goes back to the final days of Roman power in the West, when 410 Rome is sacked by the Goths. There are lots of non-Christian Romans who say, well, this is basically because we've betrayed the religiones. You know, we've, we've ripped up our insurance policy. The gods are now punishing us. The greatest figure in the Latin church, the greatest doctor, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, he says, no, this is completely wrong. Human beings and therefore the states that they create and therefore the empire of Rome are merely things of what he calls the cyclum. And by the cyclum, he means the limit of, of human experience. So you're born, you live, you die, and then you are swept away on the great turbulent um, flow of time and you, you vanish like a, a leaf on a river. The only thing that can offer humans the chance of redemption from the cyclum is the one religio, the one bond that joins people to uh, the city of God, which is eternal. And that is provided by the church. So you have the, this contrast between the cyclum and the dimension of the cyclum, the earthly, the, the ephemeral, 
and the dimension of religio as provided by the church, which will win people eternity. And that's a dualism that the revolutionaries in the 11th century force through to seismic effect. Because what they do is they say to the emperor and to earthly kings, uh, you have no right to put your grubby secular fingers all over the radiant robes of the church. Back off. And what happens over the course of the 11th century is that these radicals force through an understanding that society is divided in two between the dimension of the seculum and the dimension of the church. And this, over the course of the centuries that follow, evolves to become our distinctively Western understanding that there is something called the secular, which is separate from the dimension of something that is called religion. So we live with the after effects of that still. Podcast and broadcast, this is Soul Search on RN. I'm Meredith Lake, today contemplating the bigger picture with historian Tom Holland. His latest book is called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. And over something like 500 pages, it argues that Christianity has bequeathed the West nearly everything that makes the West distinctive, including, as we heard there, particular ideas of religion and the secular. Could Holland be right that secularism, as we think of it now, is itself a Christian concept? Well, at the very least, we can say that the idea is conditioned by history. So here's Tom's take on how notions of religion and the secular have taken shape up to now. The classic understanding of religiones, people who are responsible for religio in the Middle Ages, are those who particularly commit to it. So monks, nuns, friars, and so on. In the Reformation, everyone is responsible for religio. Everyone has his own or her own personal bond to God. So because the English-speaking world becomes Protestant and by and large accepts this understanding of what the faithful's relationship to God should be, you have an understanding of religio anglicised to become religion, which puts an emphasis on what the personal bond is between someone and God. And because of the emphasis that Protestantism puts on, on individual belief, individual openness of the soul to the, the action of the spirit, that becomes fundamental. So religion comes to mean for English speakers, uh, what, what do you believe in? But at the same time, again, because of the history of the Reformation and the, the decades and the centuries that follow it, the idea that different people have different understanding of religion also comes to be crucial. What religion are you? Are you a, a Catholic? Are you a Lutheran? Are you an Anglican? Are you a nonconformist? These are ideas that come to kind of root down in the 17th and into the, the 18th century. And that's crucial and, in, in the, an age the, of empire, yeah. isn't it? Because it gets yeah, exported well, well, I, and, then, and made into a template it, for the European yes, perspective yes. on everybody else. It does, but it's something that is bred of the wars within Europe because the idea that there is a, a space called the secular where people say can, you know, trade or do whatever they want to do without reference to religion becomes a way 
of kind of moving out of the age of religious wars that had torn Europe apart and indeed the British Isles in the 17th century. And so in English, religion comes to have this dual meaning. It's what you believe, but it's also something that is separate from something that is called the secular. And as you say, this then is something that when the British, say, go to India, which they call Hindustan, the inhabitants of Hindustan are the Hindus. And so they start saying, well, what is the religion of the Hindus? I mean, it's a mad question because the Hindus don't have a religion because religion is an entirely Anglo-centric Protestant <laughs> concept. Why, why would the Hindus have a sense of that? But over the course of the British Raj, Indians themselves start to say, well, what is our religion? So you get the concept of there being Hinduism, which is an entirely... Christian category. And you get the idea of the secular. And when the British leave India, they leave behind the idea of the secular. And so India is a secular republic. That's so, under so a lot of pressure, pressure at the moment. Yes. Yes. So, so earlier this month, Modi went to the city of Ayodhya, which many Hindus believe was the birthplace of Rama, the great hero of the, of the, the Ramayana. And they say that um, a mosque was then deliberately built on the site. That mosque got torn down by a mob in the 90s. And now a temple is being built there. And it's pretty clear that what Modi is doing there is trying to draw a line under what he sees, uh, I think correctly, as the very alien tradition of the secular that was a Western export. And I think that a very similar thing also happening in Turkey, where Erdogan's reconsecration of the museum of Hagia Sophia, the, the great cathedral that had been turned into a mosque and then turned into a museum under Ataturk, the self-proclaimed secularist. Erdogan, likewise, is trying to reverse that kind of secularist trend. And I think that that reflects the fact that as Western economic power retreats, so also does its cultural power. And people in the West are having to wake up to the fact that lots of things that they had just assumed were natural are in fact very culturally contingent. And things that are culturally contingent in the West, as I've been saying, by and large, derive from Christianity. Reading Dominion here in Australia, this place is not straightforwardly the West and the traditions that we've been discussing, the Christian, the classical, we could have talked a lot more about the Enlightenment. They were only introduced here very recently and all at once and together by the British in the late 18th century. And I mean, you've reflected a lot on the ideas that survive the end of an empire and the way in which they continue to have an afterlife, a very potent afterlife. What are your reflections, I guess, on what might survive the end of the British Empire in, in the sense that we've been talking about? Well, I think that Australia is as shot through with the legacy of this Christian history as a European country, really. And I think that that's manifest precisely in the kind of sense of guilt that has come to characterise Australian attitudes towards the founding of Australia, uh, and particularly the relationship of white Australians to, to people who originally lived here. Because, again, this goes back to what we talked about right at the beginning, this idea of dominion, of a global reach. That is what Christianity aspires to. But that very power has become problematic, and it's become problematic for deeply Christian reasons. The right of the powerful to seize the lands of the, of the less powerful, so it's been the great motor of human history since um, humans first ventured out of Africa. But there is something distinctive about the Western anxiety about this that is itself highly Western. 
So that's a further, yet another of the paradoxes that this very powerful religion, which has the image of a man tortured to death by an empire at its heart, yet another of the paradoxes that it has generated. Given that in societies like Australia, settler societies of Europe, the pews are emptying out. We have seen a large-scale disaffiliation from the churches over the last couple of generations. How do you think that trend will play out in terms of the purchase that some of these ideas that, in your argument, can be traced back to those original Christian innovations? What will happen? I reckon that there are three possibilities for where Australia, maybe the West generally, might head. One is that secular liberalism, humanism, whatever you want to call it, that even though they derive from Christianity, they've kind of obtained autonomy. So you no longer need Christianity for them to be sustained. I think the other possibility, which is a slightly more unsettling one, and it's the one that's pushed by Nietzsche, is that you can't really have Christian values without Christian beliefs. And so unless the roots are given nutrients, then uh, the blooms will, will fade. And that being so, we may end up with a more one in which racism, uh, one in which contempt for the the suffering, for the oppressed, for the poor, um, goes into abeyance. Or, or um, finds a different rationale. That is that is another possibility too, isn't it? Because for, for a for, common for humanity. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, that's that's basically what the Enlightenment has been. The Enlightenment has been an attempt to find justifications for Christian beliefs that don't depend on Christian doctrine. So essentially the past two and a half centuries have been a concerted experiment in doing that. I mean, that's what I mean about that the liberal humanism will be able to justify human rights without drawing on theology to justify it. But Nietzsche, as I say, would would raise serious doubts as to whether that's possible. And so that being so, the third possibility is that as people in the West come to realise just how culturally contingent their assumptions and their values are, they may well turn back to the wellspring of them, which, you know, so they may well find that they they kind of need to return to Christianity if they are going to sustain the beliefs that they want to believe are natural. I think that in a multipolar world, a world in which the West is is very much on the back foot, I think that kind of cultural superiority will become ever more hard to sustain. Finally, then, I wonder, having dwelt with this story over the last several years that must have taken you to write Dominion, where has it left you in terms of, you know, taking a Christianized self more seriously as something more contingent than inherent or natural? Where has that left you on a personal level? Well, I've come to realise that things like human rights, things like the idea that there is an inherent dignity in, in all human beings that these are beliefs and that if I want to hold them, then I I have to take a conscious leap of faith. And if I'm going to take a a conscious leap of faith for that, then maybe I might as well just, you know, hang for a sheep as a lamb and and believe some of the more spectacular manifestations of the Christian doctrine that gave them birth. Because the experience of writing Dominion has been to give me an immense respect for the vast legacy of Christian history, of Christian writings, of Christian myth, of Christian theology, the attempts by generation after generation of men and women to 
explain what humanity is about using these traditions, these stories, these myths. And it feels to me, and it has felt to me, even in the aftermath of writing Dominion during these kind of awful months that we've all been living through recently, that it is, it's a resource that having stumbled upon, I, I don't want to abandon. So whether that will lead me to actually believe in God or who knows, but I, I guess that there are many ways to, um, to the summit of the mountain. And I do feel myself kind of climbing a mountain at the moment. My understanding of what life is about has been immeasurably enriched by the experience of writing this book. And perhaps the most enriching aspect is that I'm not sure where it's going to lead me, but I know that I want to continue exploring it. Tom Holland is a best-selling author of popular histories of antiquity. His latest book is a huge tome called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. We've really only had a taste of it on Soul Search here today, but if you'd like to hear more or to go deeper into the detail of why he thinks it's Christianity, paradoxically, that's made the West what it is today, why not track it down and have a read? Well, I hope you've found lots to chew on in this first instalment of our Bigger Picture series. We'll be back soon with another one, next time on The Inner Self. I'll be speaking with social researcher Hugh McKay about whether we have an authentic inner self that's distinct from our social identities and relationships. I'll also be joined by the lawyer and human rights advocate Nayadol Noorn, to discuss how we might salvage an inner life from the wreck of this pandemic. I hope you can join me on Soul Search 2 for a bigger picture of the inner self. In the meantime, why not subscribe to Soul Search as a podcast? That way you won't miss a thing. For now, thanks to producer Mariam Shahab and to the RN Sound Engineers. I'm Meredith Lake and this is RN, your home of ideas. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.